Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to the Life Christian Church. My name is Christian. I'm our director of pastoral ministries, and it's my pleasure to share a message with you today as a part of our new series called Courageous Characters. Our lead pastor, Terry Smith, has discussed courage the past few weeks at our awesome drive-in services. I hope you were able to join us for those. But he just started his yearly study intensive this week where he prays and reads and preps for the coming months at TLCC. So over the next few weeks, you're going to hear from some members of our pastoral team as we tell the stories of courageous characters or Christians who have stood strong in the face of challenges, in the face of fear or difficult circumstances, and still lived and worked for the dreams that God has for the world. And I want to encourage us in doing that today. I think that the idea of courage sounds fun. It sounds heroic. It sounds, in a sense, glamorous. I want to be someone who is seen as courageous. We hear stories of courageous people, and we aspire to be like them. We want to go down in the history books, or maybe in family lore or something like that, for our grit and our determination, our betterment of the world. Courage as an idea, as a principle, it's lauded and it's praised. But I think that in reality, and really in the real times of life, I think courage is often discounted as crazy. Today I'm going to focus on the story uh, and the character of the Apostle Paul. Pastor Terry actually talked uh, through a lot of the story of the Apostle Paul in Acts in these recent weeks and how he exemplified courage. And so I'm going to take one part of that story and really kind of unpack it, pull out some points from it, and focus on it today. By the way, we, we've just talked a lot about Paul in our daily devotional reading through the latter half of the book of Acts, uh, where we send an email out each week looking at a, a part of scripture that our pastoral team reads and then writes about. You can receive that at tlcc.org devotional if you'd like uh, to, to hear scripture and what we're talking about. And then we just started every Friday's live at 8 a.m. We have a live Devo combo. So I hope you'll join us for both of those as we have meaningful conversation on scripture. But nonetheless, I love this story about Paul that we see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts talks about the early history of Christianity, how Christianity developed, how it grew, how it was spreading to the ends of the earth. And Paul is a massive part of that story. As many of you know, Paul was an early persecutor of the Christian church. He was responsible actually for killing Christians. But Paul ends up having this incredible vision where Christ actually uh, comes to him after his resurrection and he shows them that he's the true way. And he tells Paul that Paul needs to go and to share this with the world. But our story today starts off with Paul in prison. At this point, he's just traveled all around the Mediterranean Sea. He's sharing Christ. He's performing all sorts of miracles. And a whole bunch of people are coming to faith in Christ. One of my favorite parts in the story is once Paul actually gets arrested because some of the Jewish folks, realizing how much Paul is teaching against what they believed in that time, they start rioting against and in reaction to Paul and what the Christians were doing. These Jewish people actually end up trying to kill Paul. 
There's some elaborate plots uh, to kill him. People are fasting until they say that they're going to be able to kill him. And the Roman government, in response to the Jewish riots against the Christians, actually put Paul in prison because it looks or appears like Paul's done something wrong. In a succession of wildly entertaining, like law and order style episodes kick off. No joke, it's super entertaining. If you just like slowly read through it, think about what's actually going on, it's a wild story. And you can actually tell that the author, Luke, was really kind of writing it like a suspense novel. The people reading it in their time would have found it uh, incredibly interesting and have been like really engaged. And so I hope that all of us will be today. But you can even see like the detail and, and the drama set up and some of the flair of the writing to show the magnitude of this moment. And so stuff's happening like Paul's in a courtroom and he makes his defense and then the judge, which would be a Roman governor or king, would respond and someone did bribes, all this kind of stuff, it gets crazy. But in this process of Paul uh, being on trial while he's uh, arrested and going through uh, Roman officials and making his case, he realizes that he's not going to get a fair trial because uh, the, the, the Jewish people kind of have the Roman leaders in their back pocket. See, the, the Roman leaders, to set up the story, they simply don't really want to start a Jewish revolt. That's their main motive. So they're keeping Paul in prison because the Jewish people want Paul in prison, even though a lot of the Roman leaders know that Paul isn't actually guilty of breaking any laws. But because Paul knows that the trials are stacked against him, he immediately, before even receiving a verdict, which was super unusual in their time, before he makes his case and receives a verdict, he appeals his case to Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire. And so no matter the verdict of the judges, he has to end up uh, going towards Caesar if he will see him. And so the case starts moving up. This, this, it's kind of like the, a ladder of a court of appeals as we would know it. And Paul ends up traveling all around and he has a trial before a man named Felix, a Roman governor. And then Felix sends Paul to a Roman governor named Festus. And then Festus con consults King Agrippa on this trial who had more authority. And so Festus asked King Agrippa to come in to, and to give his opinion on this man who is causing riots named Paul. And then this is where we jump into the meat of our story today. And we're going to read a section of Acts here that, again, I think is really fun. So I hope you'll stick with me because we're going to read for a few minutes here. But you can just imagine the scene is set. Paul is on trial. He's causing all of this ruckus. And he represents this new group of people that people are aware of that are the Christ followers. They're the Christians. And so Paul's standing in trial here in King Agrippa and his sister Bernice in Turin. We read in Acts 25. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, again his sister. But think about some of the drama here, actually. There was a lot of rumors then that Bernice and King Agrippa, that there was, uh, though brother and sister, a weird relationship happening there. So you just think about all the drama, all the weirdness of everything that's going on here. So the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. So imagine like a slow motion entry into the courtroom as they walk in and Paul is in chains ready to make his defense against these high-ranking individuals. At the command of Festus, who again was holding the trial, Agrippa was just coming in to consult on the trial. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community, 
has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. I love it. He's setting up the scene. Agrippa, this is why I have you here. I have no reason to send him to Rome, but he has appealed his way to Rome because Paul felt called to go to Rome. And then Agrippa stops after this kind of opening monologue from Festus, and he says, Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motions with his hand. I love the flair of the story. He motions with his hand, and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Interesting enough, King Agrippa, at very least, was very well learned in the Jewish stories and even knew, as we'll see, what was going on with Jesus and his followers. And King Agrippa was at least very sympathetic uh, uh, to the prophets in what the Jews taught. And so, because Paul knows that, he says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead. He says later on, because Agrippa knew what was going on. We'll see here in a, in, a few, in a few chapters. He knew the Jewish teachings and knew this was a possibility. But let's jump back to verse three here. So he says to Agrippa, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And he begins to, the, the meat of his defense. He says, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. It's almost like he's giving a character defense. He's, he's laying down the foundation of, hey, you all knew who I was. Therefore, as I'm standing before you, that should have some sort of meaning before you. It wasn't some crazy guy. It's not that I don't know anything. It's just I've changed path. And he continues. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. And as we just read, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Agrippa knows the teachings that the Jews believed in a resurrection of the dead. So he's saying, why is it incredible that I would be proclaiming that Jesus, a Jew, was the first fruits of that resurrection, that he rose from the dead? If resurrection's possible, then why couldn't, have ha why couldn't it have happened to this guy, Jesus? He goes on to continue to kind of lay his, his background. I used to kill Christians, Christ appeared to me, and now I have to go out and share Christ with the world. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven that Christ had given him. For to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, he's saying he's just going out, he's preaching that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. He's essentially saying, hey, this is just what I was doing, and now this is why I was trying to be killed by people. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, 
that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense and he said, you are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. So this is directed towards Agrippa. And Festus, out of the corner of the room, if you will, he stops the whole thing, he cuts Paul off and says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. And I just imagine Paul calmly responding, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, Agrippa knows, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in the corner. Meaning, all these things that are happening, the Jesus stuff, the resurrection, what's happening with Christians, even what the prophets are saying about resurrection, none of this is, is random. I'm not making this up. This is something, this is a public event that has happened in our world and our society. And I love this, it's, a, it's like Paul's talking to Agrippa, Festus interrupts, says you're crazy, and then Paul goes, Festus, this is true and reasonable, and I can talk to Agrippa about this, and he comes back to Agrippa, King Agrippa, it's like he pushes Festus to the side. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Yet from here, Paul was sent on a trip to Rome. He was on a boat that crashed. He was bitten by a snake. He ended up for two years in prison in Rome where he was supposed to be seen. And we don't know what happened after those two years, but likely at some point Paul was killed for his faith by the very Caesar who he had appealed to see in court. The Caesar that ended up killing thousands of Christians. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, possibly at Paul's expense, and it's one of my very favorite stories of courage. Courage, again, I believe sounds fun as an idea, but courage is often difficult. The thing is, I think a lot of the difficult aspects of courage sound fun. To be honest, it's like, put me in prison for my faith, I'm game. Uh, Sacrifice my life for the life of a child, I'm game. I've never had to do something like that. I don't know what I would do, but theoretically, these these actions in which we step up and we do something courageous and strong and it is seen as such, I'm ready to do those things. But the part of courage that actually scares me sometimes, one of the most difficult parts of courage, and that I believe is fearful for many of us, is being called insane. When we have a clear vision of the future that God has for us, yet we're told that we are mad, as Paul was, courage enters into a unique place of difficulty because our courage isn't seen as us being courageous and standing up. We're casted off as insane or mad or crazy. See, one of the biggest struggles for humanity, and I know you know this, it's pride. 
It's social status. It's being overly self-aware, protecting our image before other people. So when we're fighting for what we think is right, we also want to maintain our image before other people. But what happens when those two things come into conflict? Courage and image. In fact, I often think that we want to be courageous for our image. We want to be seen by people, by society, as courageous people. But what happens when those two things don't come together? What happens when we're fighting for what's right? For what we believe and do, it actually looks insane. And now there's this conflict between these two things. What's right to the world and what's right for God through us? We often think that courage will be praised, but often I believe it will be labeled as crazy. Thus, part of the glamour or attractiveness of courageousness is taken away because the world isn't ready to receive it. Do we want to be so courageous then? Why I think this is a particular issue for Christ followers um, is because Christianity is, to a certain extent, it's socially subversive, meaning it challenges in love the kingdom of the world and lives according to the norms of the kingdom of heaven. And there's this necessary clash and conflict that will pop up with some frequency. It's as if we're like foreigners or citizens of another country coming into a country and we have different customs and ways of living and people are looking at us wondering why we're doing. That's how we live no matter where we live in this world. We're living according to, to, the, to, the, to the citizenship, to the kingdom, to the values, to the norms of the kingdom of heaven. A different country, a different world, if you will. And when we choose to act and to live according to the teachings of Scripture in Jesus, to raise our families with certain kinds of values, or to quit our job to, take, to chase a dream, or to speak truth where it might not be super welcome, or to treat people who do us wrong in a Christ-like way, we may not conform to the values of the culture that we're surrounded by and not fit in in the way that people expect us to or want us to. And this is obviously exactly what happened with Paul. Paul was constantly under attack because he was challenging the, 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 the cultural norms and narrative. He was challenging the cultural narratives of Greece and its philosophy and the Roman Empire and the Pharisees of his former life. And because of this, some people were not willing to accept his sober truth, which is how you can interpret when he says, what I'm presenting is true and reasonable, that it's as sober truth that he's presenting to them. Because of this sober truth that he presented, not in any overly conflictual way, he just presented honestly to them, he was put in chains. And those chains were not just physical chains, but were social chains as well. Being in prison and being shackled was a sign of shame or of failure in their culture, much as it can be today. And we see this happening all throughout scripture to God followers. Earlier in Acts, we have Christians who are thought, thought to be drunk and mad, and Peter had to rebut these claims. Or inspiration in the city of, of Corinth was considered to outsiders as madness. Or even go back into the Old Testament, Noah was considered insane. And the books of, of the kings, the prophecies were considered mad ecstasy. And there are so many stories all throughout scripture of Christians who step up courageously, but culture says, no, you're actually crazy. At the very least, there can be a social outcasting 
And then maybe at the most extreme, we see God followers who have been dying in societies that didn't accept its witness because it seemed subversive to the culture they were in. We can start in Christianity with Jesus. Jesus died because of how culturally subversive his activity and actions were. We see uh, Jesus' Christ followers dying as martyrs. And even still today, there's an estimated 100,000 Christians who die every year because their faith does not fit in with their culture around the world. Your courage very likely will not fit into the cultural norm and will therefore not be seen as courage. And I don't mean that there's going to be just one big life event of courage. Right? Like We're waiting for that one moment that we have to make a difficult decision, though those things will happen. I'm speaking of our, our day-to-day lives that should be marked by upside-down ethics to the world, subversive ethics in lifestyle and thought, where in truth, in reasonability, as Paul said, we love in ways that the primary cultural narratives might be confused or confounded by. All throughout my life even, and I'm sure if you grew up like this, then you might uh, have, be able to relate with this as well. All throughout my life, going back to my childhood, I've experienced this. I was kind of like the weird Christian kid. I wasn't super, like, super weird. I mean, maybe a little bit weird. But I wasn't like, you know, like socially super weird. But because of my faith and how I lived in my ethics, I was always considered odd. Especially playing sports and being in athletic environments. Being a teenager all the way into my mid-20s, I got made fun of for all my friends. Uh, because up until marriage, I followed a biblical sexual ethic. And so people would make fun of me incessantly and constantly. And we have a decision to make in that time. See, I think in that moment that I am doing something courageous, but instead I'm casted off as insane. And therefore, the courageous activity can lose some of its shimmer, some of the glamour of doing something so important and lose its luster. And then I am put in a decision to decide if I capitulate or if I continue encouraged. These are the daily kinds of battles that we face, the daily kind of courageous moments every day, moment by moment, demands this simple and unglamorous, unnoticed courage to live our faith. When you're driving your car, when you're at your kids' games, when you're at work, when you're dealing with your spouse, we're demanded to be couraged, to be, to be courageous and live according to the teachings of Jesus. Now, maybe this sounds uh, like a very depressing view of courage or uninspiring or maybe even worrying, uh, kind of like you know, pouring like water on the fire and the flame of ex- being excited to be courageous. But perhaps the prospect of doing this in the, in the inevitable, inevitable pushback we will receive or the sometimes unacknowledged courage of our lives, it, it just makes us feel like we have to duck our heads. We have to bull rush through the difficulties of life. We close our eyes, we close our ears, we know we have to do what's right, and we hope that we're right when we're doing it, and we just push through it. In fact, I think that this is how a lot of us look at courage, a lot of how I've looked at courage throughout my life. To face hardship, we just kind of like hide, we push through, we hope that we make it through, and it's this very simple understanding of courage. But I don't think that this is what Paul does, or that this is what scripture examples for us. Paul represents being in shackles, but not ducking his head and bull rushing through, but holding his head high. 
I think that's because Paul lived with what I would call an intelligent courage. Meaning, Paul had an answer for why he was being courageous. And he was inspired by that answer that he had. When Paul was questioned for his beliefs, yes, Festus stops him in the corner of the room and he says that he was mad and insane, but Festus also says that Paul was learned. He says, your great learnings have driven you mad and insane. In their first century context, Festus saying that, that Paul was learned in this kind of way actually was, it was kind of a compliment. It was saying that his knowledge and thoughtfulness was clearly apparent, that Paul was a thoughtful, smart guy. But it was as if he has taken it too far, or even again in the ancient context, is as if he was over-inspired. It's as if he, he was overly zealous for these thoughts that had been revealed to him. And Paul had thoughtfully crafted and been gifted a reason for his crazy courage. Even if he was labeled as, he even labeled it as true and reasonable, or again, as it could be interpreted as this sober truth. I think that sometimes when our faith and lifestyle in Christ is questioned by someone, and we're asked why we're doing what we're doing or why we believe what we believe, we'll often just respond with things like, well, I just think that this is right. Or I don't know, but it works for me or it just feels right. Now, that's a starting place for a lot of us, and that's completely okay, 100%. But I think that we should work to be able to give true and reasonable responses, to be intelligent in our courage, to be sober-minded and clear in the truth before us, so that we can defend the reason for the hope that we have within us, as Peter encourages us to be able to do. And when we do this, when we develop intelligence and clarity of mind in our courage to where we aren't just inspired by the glamour, but we're inspired by the truth and the content behind our courage, then we can be strong in the face of adversity because we have confidence in what we're being courageous for. I've heard personally and read countless stories of people who abandon their, their faith or abandon the ethic of a faith, and it's because they were challenged by culture's narratives and norms. And when asked why they do what they do, they realize that they had no reasonable response and therefore no reason to be courageous in the face of being labeled insane, and so then they abandon that faith because they don't have reasons. They had always ducked their head and never looked up and tried to find the, the truth, the over-inspiration that God had for them. Paul had such trust and belief in what he was doing. He was so inspired. He was over-inspired so that he could stand before death and social kind of ostracization and he could be confident in the face of all of those difficulties. But not only does intelligent curse courage keep us inspired when we're being rejected and not receiving the worldly benefits of being seen as a courageous person, but our intelligent courage can also inspire others. Though Paul didn't see the immediate ramifications of his conversation with Agrippa and with Bernice, with them coming to faith, it at least gave them a reasonable opportunity to come alongside Paul. See how Luke, the author of Acts, writes the story. It shows that Agrippa had actually some sort of affinity for Paul, the way in which it's written. Its first century uh, 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 readers would have seen this as, as some sort of 
open opportunity and excitement of the open door to evangelize to the highest people in the Roman government and in their context. And so th there was this exciting, like, wow, we can have these conversations and it can actually go this well. Because guess what? The first century church who's reading this just experienced a period of immense persecution. And so the writer of, of Luke is saying, hey, I know you're going through this hardship in your society right now, but look at what has happened and what can happen when you move forward with an intelligent courage. Even though some people will label us as crazy, we still have to be crazy enough to believe that the Spirit can, through us, bring people alongside us in our journey with Christ. Intelligent courage, I believe, helps others join us. But as we see with Paul, and I think maybe one of the most difficult parts of this whole thing, is that we won't always see the fruit of our courage when we're being courageous. When we think about being courageous, we think about all the immediate ramifications. We think about, the, again, the glamorous or, the, or the, the, those, those big things that we might receive. It's like, oh, I'm going to do this great thing, and then all of Twitter is going to retweet me, and everyone's going to look at it. I'm going to viral video on YouTube, and everyone's going to send it out of me doing some great thing or some great speech, and then my courage is going to be capitalized on socially in terms of social capital right now. Or maybe, again, the family lore aspect, and you begin to be seen as the patriarch or the matriarch of your family over time. Or whatever the thing is that we often want the, the implication of our courage to take place right before our eyes. So it's like our courage is cashing in for us. But oftentimes... If we're truly being courageous, we will be seen as so crazy by society or the majority of culture or the majority of Twitter or whatever the thing might be that we might not be accepted for the truth and the values and the way in which we might live. Therefore, courage does not always pay off in the way that we want it to pay off. I remember there was this one time uh, where a guy wanted to learn more about Christianity, didn't believe in Christ, and he wanted to sit down and have some questions, and he just pelted me with questions and all sorts of critiques for quite a while. We're sitting there uh, at a restaurant writing down on napkins, you know, uh, you know, kinds of ways to answer questions and diagrams, all this sort of stuff. I put a lot of effort in, and he asked questions in a very respectful way. And I sat there for a couple of hours, and what I often think when I do this, and I've done this a lot, is that you, you want immediately positive feedback, right? I, I want him to say, you know what? Wow, you're right. I believe in Jesus. Or, wow, that's really, really compelling stuff. Like, that, that's really interesting. Um, I, I don't have any, you know, uh, way to answer that. Or, I think you're actually right about this argument and this argument. But, instead, he walked away a little bit dissatisfied. At least it seemed to me. It was as if I couldn't like enter his head and do the exact thing that I wanted to do and, and make everything make sense. And it didn't feel great afterwards for me. And those are always kind of moments of courage. Like you're stepping out, you're talking to someone who disagrees with how you uh, believe and see things and, and the evidence that I have and that Christians have. And so you're kind of stepping out in a courageous moment, but then it's not capitalized on in that time. And then it feels like almost a wasted effort or someone's walking away going, oh wow, he's crazy. And that has happened to me more times than not. That's how most of my conversations about God go. Where people go, uh, like, wow, you actually believe that or you actually live that way. That's absolutely wild. That's how most of my conversations go. Maybe that's an issue with me, but I think I do a decent job at having conversations like that. And so I am 
put in this position of not having the payoff that I expect or some sort of dissatisfaction and someone looking at me in a way in which they perceive me to not be smart, which would be a pain point for me. But the courage to step up and tell and live the truth in order to do this and realize that it's not going to be ratified, we have to not concern ourselves with the results of our courage today, but the results of our courage, if it's hidden and not noticed, that will take place tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and on into eternity. See, Christian courage is not about any sort of recognition that we will receive, which, to be honest, I do think is a part of the draw of courage and a part of the draw of the stories that we hear of courageous people. We want to be like that and be seen like that. Courage is actually about faithfully following the calling that God gives us, no matter where it will take us, and then the bigger reward that we will receive, not in this life, though God will reward us in this life, but the biggest reward is the one that we will receive tomorrow and the day after that on into eternity. First of all, because courage is often facing the difficulties in the world around us, a lot of the time the difficult people or the societal milieu won't give us the kind of response that we won't and won't recognize you. Often it's only after the life of the courageous that the courage is seen, or maybe even only after the kingdom of heaven comes to earth and we live our eternal lives with God and his followers that we will actually be recognized. Just look through the history of famous people, courageous people. Often, they're completely rejected by society, and they even doubt themselves in their own valiant work. But most of all, we must look at Christ and see how his courage was detested and even brought him to death. He lived a life unlike any before him. He loved uniquely. He spoke truth subversively. He faced death with the spirit of life. In his life, he had followers, but many doubters. In his death, even his followers became doubters. And after his resurrected life, still many who have evidence of his resurrection doubt him. But Jesus didn't just think about what was happening during his life or how he was received and lauded or praised or glamorized. He humbly and courageously lived. And now we can look at his legacy today. Look at how his courage, though not in his own day, but the days to come, developed into a church living out his courage, inspired by his spirit within us. That's the courage that we are inspired by, one that does not always pay off in the moment or can be persecuted and challenged and called names in the moment, but one that will be eternally recognized and rewarded. This is how and why we are courageous. This is how Paul can stand before a court with blood, sweat, and tears before kings and governors and high-ranking people and be ridiculed and shamed and be called mad and insane but stand there and be courageous. That one guy that I just said that I shared Christ with, he ended up coming to faith. Actually a strong foundation of faith, but it took a little while for that to happen and it didn't feel great in the moment, but history proved the courage to be true. Time 
proved the courage to be true. And maybe you are experiencing moments of difficulty that you need to push through courageously. And I encourage you to remember that your courage will be seen as courage, that it will not be forgotten, that God is with you now, that we are with you now, and that your courage will be honored for eternity.